When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Holly. Hello, Dave. Always nice to see you live and in person on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. How are you doing today? I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to be here back in the garage. Yeah. Seeing your face and seeing the face of our guest who's about to enter the studio. Yeah, our guest is Denny Tedesco. He's done a couple of rock documentaries. What was the name of these? His first one was on The Wrecking Crew. Tell him the story of his family because his dad is Tommy Tedesco, who is an amazing guitarist. In The Wrecking Crew. So he was one of these famous, famous, I guess you could call them, session guitarists. He played on right up there with Hal Blaine and, and Carol Kay. Yeah, these names you don't know of, which is why we have this movie now, because they came out of the shadows and... We kind of learned that there were musicians behind these these amazing songs that we know and love. The primary reason we're talking to Denny today is because he's got a new documentary on The Immediate Family called The Immediate Family Film. This is a new family. The Wrecking Crew was his actual family. This is a, his new family, The Immediate Family. And who is The Immediate Family, Holly? The Immediate Family, who you may remember we interviewed back in 2020, they are also a group of session musicians that played on all the Laurel Canyon music from the 70s, like with Carole King and James Taylor and Jackson Brown. You forgot Stevie Nicks. You forgot Don Henley. How could I forget? Yeah. So Denny has made a documentary on this group of session musicians and touring musicians, and they're beloved in the music community. And so that's what we're talking about today, the immediate family. Yeah. The immediate family consists of Danny Korchmar a.k.a. Cooch, Wadi Wachtel, Ross Kunkel, Leland Sklar, and Steve Postel. We got to see the screening of this and loved it. And now we're going to talk to Denny. And because we talked to Denny for a very long time, you're going to see outtakes on our YouTube channel at What Difference Does It Make Podcast, and we will post them also on our social media at WDDIM Podcast. So let's welcome Denny into our garage on the What Difference Does It Make Podcast. How am I doing here? better oh yeah there you go okay yeah oh you sound nice oh thank you (laughs) you got that covid voice voice of brenda vaccaro okay wait was your dad from new york yeah yeah well niagara falls new york mom and dad grew up in niagara falls they moved out in 53 the tone i have it it happens all the time everybody assumes i'm from new york but i'm born in burbank i like to say west i'm in the west valley that's (laughs) Yeah. Born in the West Side. West Side? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's a tone. It's it's slang. It's slow. It's, I don't know. There's something about, like, attitude. even the, the tone. Yeah, yeah the, the tone. Heavy, yeah. I, I had friends also from New York, and right. they had, like, this this gravitas well, to their to their voice. And it it's was, an attitude. It's, it really is. and Because it was weird. always, I was terrified of this of this dad because he had this, oh, you know, wow. he seemed kind of larger than life, even based on uh, just the way he walked yeah. in a room. Like, oh, okay. It's a different attitude. Did your your dad have that? that Oh, very much so. He looked, I mean, do you remember Fernwood Tonight? 
You remember the I show remember, for yeah. Tiny? Yeah, with Martin, Martin Mull. Right. Yeah. So he got a call to audition for it. And he said, no, I'm not doing it. He goes, every time I get, you guys ask for a guitar player, you're looking for like a nice, good-looking 20-year-old kid with blonde hair, curly hair. He says, no, I'm not doing it. They said, no, we're looking for a guy that looks like he's a truck driver from Cleveland. He says, I'll be right down. <laughs> and that, you know, that was his thing. It was, that's what he looked like. He did not look like a guitar player. And one of the highlights of watching The Wrecking Crew was at the very end when you see him on the gong show. Oh, that's yeah. right. He did that as a, obviously a joke there. And right. he went there dressed up as a ballerina. He knew the guys in the band. He didn't, you know, he did it literally as a joke and thinking he's not going to get picked. He got picked and they put you in a back room very quickly. I think they audition you and then put, put you, you right on. on. <laughs> There's no like messing around. I used to be number one. I did all the work in this town. In the 50s, I was something. In the 60s, I was a king. In the 70s, come around. Now I'll do anything. He won. You know, he was happy. He got his $532, got a shower massage. And then they asked, who wrote the song? I did. Yeah. <laughs> so he got his little residual there. No, he was a hustler. So cool. Just the whole concept of making your living that way. I was thinking about the difference between his generation and the immediate family. How they, yeah. this is what they did. And the immediate family went on the road and, and yeah. they saw it as making a living. You know, you were, I mean. I think they, what they do have in common is they're just so grateful they made a living playing guitar. Yeah. Any musician that can play and make money. Oh my God, you've just, you know, you're a minority. Mm-hmm. And to make a living at their level, those guys, my father and of his era, as well as Leland and Russ and Danny and Wadi in their era, that's another level. You were talking about a very small minority. My father always said to the kids at, you know, MI and those schools during the seminars, if you don't make money, it's okay. You, did, you didn't start this instrument to make money. You started because you loved it. So you should never stop playing no matter what. And he did too. I mean, even when he was retired, even after his stroke, he still held the guitar and he would still kind of mess around even though he wouldn't take a job. But it was uh, mentally, it was there. He never left it. Well, the reason we have you in here is to talk about the- Is um- the intervention? The, 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 yes. <laughs> Surprise. I, w- I wanted to let you know. I know. Yeah. Okay. As a Valley kid, we, yes. we feel it's our obligation. Yeah. Uh, okay, one of the immediate family yeah. members is a Valley boy, Leland. Yeah. Yep. Leland's from Birmingham High School. Yes. Yeah, it's funny because that's another bonding moment for me. I'm going to Modesto with Leland tomorrow. We're driving up to do a screening up there. So that's another six hours of drive. He's the best to hang. I would imagine six six hours in a car with Leland. It just just goes like with like 15 minutes. It just feels like a breeze. Yeah. And but Leland, yeah, he grew up in the valley. And in the new movie, I actually I said, Leland, where did you live? Give me the address. So I went and took a picture of where he lived and sent it to the animators and they kind of animated his mm-hmm. house to look like that. Oh, uh, yeah. the animation was really cute. I really, no, I, I liked it. Yeah. Was it your vision? Yeah. I just said to these, it's hard because I don't know animation. And I w- looked yeah. at a lot of people, different people. And it was my wife who said, Hey, there's these kids that did this thing for a friend of ours, Ali Salima director. They did a spot on him. They actually animated him. And I'm like, Oh, that's perfect. And it was, yeah. and I wanted it simple. I wanted it like peanuts. Yeah. It didn't have to be, you know, we didn't want to go deep into being that clever. All the animation has something, 
unique for it. Like with when he leaves Birmingham High School in that animation, and he says, "I'm dr-, you know had to basically drag my stand up bass." You know, like it was going through the snow, and we crossed Van Eyes uh, the the drive-in, and mm-hmm. then I look. If you look at it, it's like Beach Blanket Bingo was playing on that in 1965. So I threw that on there. Oh, that's so awesome! It's it's fun stuff. Little Once Upon a Time in Hollywood type. Uh, another part of the animation I love is the, the, the cover art. Yeah, <laughs> it's great with the tree and the and the roots. Yeah, well, well who it came was, up with that. I did. It was basically what happened was. If you remember on the Wrecking Crew documentary, you need to show the audience right off the bat. You can't just play one or two songs. With the Wrecking Crew, for example, there's 110 songs in it, you know, that first movie. So that was a horror to uh, get through that. But at the beginning, I had to show, and someone would say, well, can't you cut the songs down to 20? I said, no. I said, because, I said, if I played Smokey Robinson, Jackson 5, Temptations, and uh, Supremes, it's, you know, it's Motown. But in the 10 songs at the front of Wrecking Crew, you have Sinatra, the Monkees, the Beach Boys, you know, maybe Don Cushain, and even the Chipmunks. I said, you have no idea why all that stuff is there. It's the combination, it's part of the band. So you kind of got to throw all that at them. So when we were doing the tree, I said, well, the media family, you know, a family tree. I used to do those Time Life spots, those CD commercials, produced those years ago. And it was weird because, you know, you always watch those things and you go, oh, I know that song. And you wait for the yellow to come up to find out well, who it was. You know, they always highlight that mm, right. the song. So that's what we did in this. So That's right. You remember that. That, we, that little touch. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. that's amazing. The only time we would ever watch a whole commercial was the, the time life because you want to see the artists and the ones, the next song they're yeah. going to play in the commercial. It was awful, those things. Yeah. Did you but, have, did you get K-Tail Records? Was that oh, okay yeah. For you? yeah. Still have them. Yeah. I oh, still have one. Oh. Yeah. Brownsville, uh, what was it? Brownsville, um, smoking in the boys' room. Smoking in the boys' room is on that one. <laughs> God, I'm really showing that now. No. <laughs> <laughs> that was an era. Yes, it was. <laughs> it's there's so much music in this, and then of course the first thing that pops in my mind is how does he get the rights to all this music? This is oh. insane. You know, normally you hear like you know a director will say we we need this one song. And, you know, like we couldn't we couldn't have this one song because it was too expensive. Right. You have hundreds of songs yeah. <laughs> packed in there. How did well, you do this? That was uh, so the wrecking crew. When we started, dad was passing away. Tommy Tedesco, my dad was passing away. And I wanted to tell that story. And I knew I didn't have much time. So I got my friends together and basically in about a month or so, we sat them down at a round table at a studio and just started filming. I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I knew what I wanted. I knew the beginning, the middle, and the end of the story, but at least I knew I wanted him on camera. And we were shooting film at the time. And he passes away, and then I started trying to shop it. I had a 14-minute piece, and what ended up happening was everybody's, oh, this is great, but you're never going to get it made. Mm-hmm. I totally remember them saying that, which the worst is it's a friend. <laughs> I won't mention his name. Yeah. He doesn't even probably remember. The feeling was the record industry publishers are not going to come together. They're not going to come together and help each other create this piece of where there's, you know, Spectre's going to be with the Beach Boys on the same. So I just kept going and I kept going. And over the years, I kept basically interviewing people. And I keep, you know, cutting. I never cut, actually. I didn't cut until 2006, 10 years afterwards. 
and I tell this story so many times, but my wife said, we just made the most expensive home movie ever. <laughs> you know, we had kept flipping credit cards, kept flipping the mortgage to pay the credit cards, and it was getting nowhere. And I tell people, it's like having, you're basically overlooking the ocean. You have this property. You don't have a house on it. You have the appliances waiting. You have the plans. You have everything. But until you build it, you can't sell it. You don't know what it's going to look like. And no one would ever help. So we just kept going. And I basically, at that point, borrowed more money. And um, we cut it. My uh, editor and producer, Claire Scanlon, cut it with me. And we got into the festivals. So at that point, we have 110 songs. I kind of negotiated with them on the back and said, hey, it's going to be this much, da, da, da. And 2008, as we remember, everything crashes. So now there's companies that closing so no one's going to talk to you about music docs and there was actually an article in variety I always remember this because i got mentioned in it i was like they were talking about martin scorsese struggling with his uh stones doc and mm -hmm. demi struggling with his neil young doc and denny tedesco has his doc called the wrecking crew and none of them can find a placement and I went yes i'm <laughs> so happy to be on this right page it, of losers with these guys it, yeah, yeah nice yeah I'm just always wondering, did they ever wonder who I was? No, I don't think so. Never got um, a call from Marty? No, Mar you know, I always wait, Marty, Marty, <laughs> no. Basically, it was no one wanted to talk about music docs. It was too expensive. There was such a big back end. And then it was a publisher from Bug Music. She said to me, and she was a big fan of the movie, she says, listen, you got to renegotiate. You got to go back out to renegotiate with all of us. You got to bring this price down. You're promising us way too much money which is so unusual for someone. To, right. She goes, you're never going to get me. So she goes, we figured out what I should ask for. And, and she's, she's signed off. She goes, all right, now go get all the others. So from 2010 all the way to the end, I had to basically go renegotiate with all the labels and the publishers and ask them for a better rate. Now, at this point, I'm in this game for, what, 12 years now. I'm starting to become a legend of, of a guy that never got his film out. I mean, that's the, you know, it was a weird, sad part. Suddenly you're Brian Wilson. Yeah, <laughs> my, it's my smile. Never yeah. thought about that. It could have been my smile. Yeah. It's very funny. But when we did the festivals, we did extremely well. We had 12 awards, sellout crowds, the reviews were off the charts. So what do I do? Do I quit? Just take the awards and put it next to my uh, most inspirational trophy <laughs> from football, high school. No. So I just, I because I put so much money into it, I thought I crossed a line. I got to go back out and try to raise more money to finish it so I could sell it. So my family, I haven't destroyed everything I had. You know, that was a fear. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I basically came up with ideas of how to raise money. And I was trying to get corporate, you know, like vendor, or these companies to help out DW. None of them would help. Yeah, we'll give you a drum. We'll give you a guitar. But I, guys, I said, listen, on the DVD, I said, why don't we do this? I have 12 years of outtakes of Glenn Campbell, Leon Russell, da, 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 all these people talking about their guitars, whatever. Make it the Fender Presents chapter. Mm -hmm. No one would help. All I'm asking for at this point is an ad in a magazine. Long story short, someone said, why don't you do dedications? I said, what do you mean? You know how in a hospital you have a dedicated you know, a brick in the wall? He says, it, it comes from a radio guy, Orban. Do you know Orban? Orban, yeah. yeah that, technology. Yeah. So it was Greg who was working with Orban. And he said, listen, he goes, the technology, when I was a kid, I was listening to Up, Up, and Away on AM radio. 
I turned the channel, was up, it was up, up, and away on a different station, but I could tell the difference. I mean, he's a total geek, you know yeah. what I mean? Radio yeah. geek. He goes, I could tell the difference, and that got me focused into the radio business. He started creating things in technology and stuff. He goes, I'll give you $1,000 right now, be the first one out. I said, on the back of the credits, you'll see dedicated, be my baby, dedicated, by da, da, da. You know, Greg dedicated, up, up, and away. So I would find people, hey, listen, give $1,000, you can put a dedication up on the, on the screen and then write it out on the DVD, write it out on the website. And that was the start. I mean, it wasn't always $1,000. Sometimes it was only $10. And if you were a dollar to $99, I created a, a groupie level. If you were above that, you were the uh, roadie. And above that, and it just created fun things to do. And I would go around the country and basically show the film to private screenings, in a sense, private. Anywhere but L.A. and New York, I was avoiding it here. And I would just find, hey, I'll put your name up on the screen before the trailer, and I'll give you six tickets. You give me $500, $250. Long as I could raise money as I went along, I was able to pay off the publishing and the label. So every time I come back, sometimes I lose. You know, there was nothing worse than losing. You came back with nothing, and you owed. Or I come back with $15,000 or $2,000 or 500 Every time I came back with money, I'd pay off something I could pay off. And never took a dime, obviously. I'd be, never be here. I never be, would never have finished. So that's how I created that way of fundraising. That's incredible. That's, and, a, that's no, it, very that's, creative. And, it, it was out of necessity. And, yeah. and you learn as you go along. Yeah. My favorite song dedication was Gary Lewis's Everybody Loves a Clown. And I'm looking at what's left. Like, who, who's going to do that song? Well, no one's going to do that song. And I thought, oh, I'm going to call it Clown School. And I looked up clown schools in L.A. And I found one called Los Angeles Clown School. And they gave me $1,000. Amazing. The guy was Whoa. like, I've never heard a pitch like this. I said, thank you. <laughs> Everybody loves a So it was great. That's how we did it. Tenacity from Tedesco. Yeah. It's well, just <laughs> tenacity. Yeah. Is what was it? Uh, Mark Barron said was interviewing. Um, uh, he interviewed me once at the beginning stages, and he interviewed Herb Alpert. Herb, my name came up, and Herb said he's like a pit bull. He won't get let go. Yeah. But that was the only way. Nineteen years from the beginning to the end. And I'm not a hero. It was just I had no choice. Yeah. What am I going to do? Quit? And like I said. Doesn't I was way in debt, and the labels and the publishers came around. Yeah, they become part of it. It's their business. Yes, we still have problems with some labels, you know, that are paying the asses, or publisher that's a pain in the ass. I won't mention her name. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's being realistic. These aren't money makers. Documentaries, yeah. guys, we're not Taylor Swift docs. The best part of the Wrecking Crew is what you mentioned: getting your dad in there with his friends, and just. A round table, just talking yeah. and reminiscing and telling these stories yeah. that needed to be told. They, you needed to get that out there. That's, that's the best part about the Wrecking Crew is just seeing I, these guys just talking back that, and, and forth. That's the only the weird thing is that came out of uh, my love of uh, 
Broadway Danny Rose movie with Woody oh, Allen. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, nice. Where he sits with the managers. The managers are all talking about Danny Rose or Diner with the Barry Levinson. Yeah. I love when they overlap each other and just blah, 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 and argue. And I never saw my father work until the I never saw him play guitar at home until the 70s, 1975, 76, maybe. Because dad went to work like every other dad. He, you know, instead of a drill or a hammer in the trunk, he had the 12 string mm -hmm. and the Telecaster and he had the banjo and a mandolin and had his tools in the, in the trunk. He went to work 12, 14 hours a day, whatever comes home, he's not picking up an instrument. He didn't have to practice. Mm. He's going back out the next morning. And so until the 70s rolled around when he was basically doing his own music as a jazz artist, that's when I saw him start doing his thing. So I never saw him play once or while, once in a while in the studios, but very little. We never took us to work. Ever so, take your kid to, to, no. to work? <laughs> Only when it was like President's Day, and it was torture because then you're gonna, you know, he's doing let's say um, Chips or one of those shows, you know, mm -hmm. and it's just boring. Music's boring. Music cues, you know, if you don't like it. Now it's really cool. What I'm saying is, I only knew him sitting around with other musicians gambling. <laughs> and chit chat, you know, and eating yeah. and the banter. Yeah. Musicians are unique. They banter like they have instruments in their hand. So they're always trying to one up on each other, you know, <laughs> tease each other. And that's what I grew up with. So that's why I knew if you put the right grouping together, mm. something's going to come up. It's so. so old school, their banter. It's so. Oh, it's so good. It's so yeah. good. Yeah. We're trying to release that as a whole section, the 45 minute piece, the round table by itself oh. as an extra. Oh, nice. Yeah. What a treat for you. Like an, another favorite part in the Wrecking Crew is you talking with Glenn Campbell. Yeah. And Glenn says, let me tell you a funny story about your dad. Yeah. Like, like you're probably feeding off this stuff. Oh, it's yeah. totally. And that was the weirdest thing is, I mean, there's so much that people would tell me and share with me that obviously it wasn't about my dad the whole show. The things that they always told me would blow my mind because they were things that I never heard before. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, when Glenn's talking about playing upside down, my dad was on a Jan and Dean date and how he presented it to me on the phone the first time. I, oh my God, that's such a great story. He said, we were on a Jan and Dean date, he said, and dad stands up to walk towards the music and Jan got really pissy and said, Tommy, sit down. <laughs> so my father, if you know my father, He's got no patience for it. You know, all right, let me sit down. All right, fine. And he starts playing. And they go, what are you doing? What are you playing? I'm just playing what's there. And Jan walks over and it's upside down, the music. He, all he was trying to do is turn it upside down so he could play it right. And it was upside down when it was laid there. So that's why... That's smart why ass. that, yeah, total smart. smart yeah. My father was the biggest smart ass in the world. He was a scorch. That's what we would call us. Another wonderful touch in both of these documentaries is you have the players play along yeah. to the music, which what a great idea to do that. Thank you. Yeah. I loved watching them play as they go into the and song. That was a necessity when from the first one, Claire and I were cutting and Carol would always have her bass in front of her and did those few things. It was still at the beginning stages. Someone said, you need more of that, mm -hmm. of them playing. It's like, well, how am I going to do that? You know, dad's gone. So I put actually... Hal in the studio I thought well this works because this is how he works you put headphones on him he's here in the track and he's playing along so I thought well that's perfect because now it just naturally came I thought alright look we just hear the drums we don't know what he's playing and we slowly give it away mm -hmm. hint in
little less conversation, a little more action. All this aggravation ain't satisfaction in me. A little more bite, a little less spark. A little less bite, a little more spark. Close your mouth and open up your heart. So when we did the next film, this film, that was my big pitch to the guys. This was, you guys got to tell me which songs do you want to play to? And let's go for that. And we just let them. It's so much fun watching audiences trying to like look at them going when they hear that, you know, one lick and they don't know what it is until we start fading it up. It's fun to watch their faces. The Edge of Seventeen. Yeah. Wadi. Learned oh. Wadi doing the, yeah. the you know, I didn't want to play it the way she wanted it. Yeah. And he played the, whatever it was he was doing. Yeah. And then into the song. That was oh, so cool to yeah. see. Yeah. Yeah. Now I, I watched a live version of Stevie Nicks doing do 17. <laughs> Me too. And like, oh, wow. You don't even think about no. Okay. He's doing this for a long, long it was. time. on the road now with her yeah you know yeah. and i and i thought about it the other day when i saw him i thought or you know saw that he was playing and i thought, oh my god he's got to you know because it's hard mm-hmm. you know and these guys are amazing <laughs> because yes there's 76 you know all of them i think now but i think steve's younger Yes, yeah, Steve's the kid. He's the baby at 65. Yeah, just a baby. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's amazing. It's not about age. It's about they just don't hold back. They just go for it. Talking with Denny Tedesco, he has created a documentary called The Immediate Family Film. It's a long talk. We need a bathroom break, so we will be right back. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. And we're back on the What Difference Does It Make podcast with Denny Tedesco. Well, yeah, we were fortunate to have the immediate family on, on our podcast. Just as a Zoom, yeah. unfortunately, you know, they weren't all in the same room, but they were interacting with each other. And it's getting these guys all together. It was similar to, yeah. you know, the round table, the, the, the wrecking crew. Yeah. yeah. Get these guys, let them talk. That's one of the, the beautiful things is getting these guys together. We've seen documentaries like the Eagles or, you know, where they have to keep Eagles apart that you have to keep these guys because otherwise there's going to be, you know, there's going to be knocking of heads like, oh, no, you're telling it wrong or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so just having these guys who clearly love these guys. That's funny. I never thought about that part. (laughs) Maybe the next doc, I'll find it. (laughs) Was it the first time we had that many people on one Zoom? Because it was pretty early on. That's hard. Oh, it was. For Zoom. We divided it into two parts. It took us a while. Who is it? Was it Russ? Cooch. It was Cooch. Oh, God. Tell me about, because Cooch took a, I mean. He didn't warm up very fast. Yeah. It took us, oh, (laughs) good. I'm glad that happened because it took us like 45 minutes of talking like, and like, is it something? Do we say something? Yeah. Yeah. And then. (laughs) He thinks we're idiots. But then finally we asked him. Yeah. I'm just laughing. (laughs) I think it was when we, when we started talking about Linda. I think that's when he. Lightened, yeah. Yeah. Or like the video where he dances with, with Linda. Yeah, right. Um, I think he kind of like, he liked telling those stories or like when he he could tell something about an, an artist that yeah, he truly yeah, yeah. loves yeah. that's when he kind of warmed up a little bit that's so funny yeah i don't think i even realized it until i watched it back or and listened to it back yeah. i was like oh <laughs> he was great in the he's, film though. he's awesome in the film mm-hmm. right it, it, that's why i love when danny was my first guy because danny was with carol danny was my connection to everything in a weird way because when the guys, when Jack and Greg and Jonathan, the, my producers, came to me with this idea, and I said, oh, this sounds great, because these guys that have this band called The Immediate Family, and I knew who the guys were. I mean, they're legends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of Wrecking Crew, I added that line with a VO, was, this is a story about my father and his extended family, The Wrecking Crew. They were a family. Mm-hmm. You know, they see more of each other than their own families you know, when you're working and stuff. And that lasted a good 10 years for them. And then with this one, with the fact that they have this band called Immediate Family, I said, oh, there's a nice spin to it. There we go. And then the other thing is, Lou Adler says at the end of Wrecking Crew, the question to him was, did you make a change in your sound? Did you consciously hire new musicians when you did Tapestry? He goes, oh, no. He goes, Carol brought in Cooch and... And James, her friend, you know, James Taylor, they were her friends. So that song of It's Too Late, I can't hear a lyric to save my life, by the way. Unless it's written out, I can't tell you what it says. 
You too? Yeah. It's, you mean oh. when you're listening to music? Yes. Yeah. Same. It's the, uh, it's the music to me. It is. Less I don't. The, I can hear. Yeah. I can hear the riffs. I can hear the beats. <laughs> I can hear Danny solo, and I know Danny solo. I could scat Danny solo. <laughs> you know, I can't play guitar, by the way. So that was like one of my favorite songs. That album such a beautiful album. Mm -hmm. So I was excited about it. And then Danny was the first one. We set up Carol King. And Carol wanted Danny with her. So that's why Danny's in that. Oh, that's, that's why. Great. And it made sense. And it was yeah, great. Yeah. And that's the relationship. If you take a couple of those people out, Peter Asher, if you take Peter Asher off this earth in terms of like he was never born, da, 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 mm -hmm. you might not have James Taylor. You might not have Danny's career. Everybody in my, Linda's career might have gone a different way. Everybody's, you know, pertinent to each other. So we pitched the idea that we had about doing a documentary on these guys. And they said, yeah, we'd love to do it. The next day they said, Carol can do it in three weeks. <laughs> and I went, oh my God, I'm panicked now. Because, right. you know, this is real. You know, the other film took 19 years to make. I thought I had time. <laughs> I thought I could do this in half the time. So I quickly, you know, started studying and listening and, you know, went with it. And you start learning on, as you go along. You don't know the story until you really start asking the question. And then within six months, we had almost all the stars in the can. We had Linda Jackson, Carol James, Lou Adler, Phil Collins, and kept going. And then COVID hit. And it was like, oh, shit, now what do we do? And none of the guys, we didn't even have the guys in the can yet. You start thinking the horrible things, as we all remember. Mm -hmm. If this is real, no one can be near anybody. You know, we can't go interview these guys with a crew. So we slowly went out with just myself and sound and a camera person. And we just got them in the can and just kept building. Kept going. Wow. Yeah. When we spoke to them, they had just recorded the video where they all shot themselves They're amazing, separately. by the way. Yeah. That's the yeah. other thing about those guys because... A lot of other people would have just walked away from it. Why they don't need this crap? They don't, you know, when I crap, I mean, they love what they're doing. It's a lot of work to put an album out. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of work doing what they're doing. They love doing it, but it's not money making. You don't make money putting out your own albums. For them to not just walk away during COVID and having a meeting every Friday, they would have a meeting, talk about music, what we're going to do, and they would write songs, Danny and Wadi and Steve, and Russ sometimes, they would all write music mm -hmm. and they basically record their tracks and put it together. And it was amazing. Then they did those videos. Yeah. I mean, their videos are really yeah, good. Yeah, they were talking, yeah. I remember they were talking about how proud they were that they, they did it within COVID. Like, yeah. it was just, like, everybody on their own. Had to do their own thing. Yeah. Get an iPhone and just do it. It's yeah. like, I could never have done that. I mean, you know, they're really good. You know, where other people maybe did walk away from the business and just said, I can't do it anymore. They didn't stop. Yeah. yeah. But like Wadi says in the film, he says, I've never met anybody that was retired in the music business that was happy. You, right. know, you don't oh, right. stop playing. <laughs> yeah. And no one's right. Yeah. So like, yeah, like your dad still had a guitar in his hand. He's like, nope. even with his stroke, he still yeah. couldn't do the right hand, but he could do the left hand. And he would just make it work. Yeah. You have um, in New York City, you're, you're filming 
the band. Did you? Was that you? Oh, yeah, yeah. What's that like in the middle of well, Manhattan? Yeah. <laughs> it was well, Times Square. Yeah. As my friend Tom Goldstein, we can do anything in Manhattan. Uh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You, as long as you don't put a tripod down, you could film. Is that right? Yeah. No permits. Nothing. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Gorilla style. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. That's New York. I found out they were playing, and I said, "Uh oh." They're playing in New York. Guys, we got to go get this. Mm-hmm. So we flew out there and we filmed them. You know, you keep building. You don't know what you need, but you got to get it. Whether it makes it on the floor or it makes it in the film, you just keep shooting. But New York's great because the guys are, you know, Danny and Wadi and Steve are from New York. It's their hometown. So you got all of them after you got the artists? The yeah, main- pretty much. During COVID, the few Zoom interviews we did which we had with Neil Young, Stevie Nicks, Steve Jordan, and Keith Richards. Those were, you know, came in. But it's funny, you could see the difference between Keith Richards versus Neil Young. You oh, know, yeah. Keith Neil, was leaned right in there, and oh, like yeah. you see his shiny teeth, like, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's got good looking yeah, he's, teeth. He's, he's got good teeth. Yeah. <laughs> he, he can pay for good teeth. Yeah, I know. He, he has paid for good teeth. Yeah. <laughs> was that the most coherent? Did you take the most coherent? parts of, yeah. of Keith Richards. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't that bad. It, it's funny you say that because it, 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 when you're listening to it, go, no, 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 you know, it's like when I'm at, interviewing someone when you're doing a doc and stuff, I'm editing in my head as I'm listening. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that there's a break, a pause, yeah. so that you can cut and there's a, you know, or a finished thought. So there were a couple interviews that we sent, they just wanted the questions and they sent it back to us. And I won't mention names, but it didn't work. Yeah, it's hard. You need yeah. to have like what we're doing oh, now. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And you know, because someone's going, "Oh, what's the question?" Blah 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 There's no no follow up. No, yeah, it's hard. So you know, that kind of was a bummer. But you know, with Keith Richards, he was one of the few that we actually sent questions and came back right. It didn't matter. Whatever Keith was going to send me, I'm putting oh. it in. The same with Neil. Doing the interview with Neil it was me, Nico Bolas, and um, Al Smith, the great engineer on that. So Neil Young is called Shaky for a reason. Is that the way I, this came maybe, out like? Maybe. Because <laughs> for folks that don't see it, when you see him, he's just walking around. And, you know, he's just walking and looking <laughs> into the camera. And he's just moving all the time. So it's like, it's great. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. The way he plays guitar, it's just kind of whatever he feels yeah. like. I was just happy that, you know. Yeah, that was nice. And, and the fact that Don Henley's in this, and, you know, when you're talking about the Eagles and stuff, Danny is so, as Don said, he wouldn't have had a solo career if it yeah. wasn't for Danny Kochmar. Yeah. And I know they butted heads over the years, and, you know, he did three albums with him, and that was it. But two personalities that are very, you know, strong-willed, but they're strong-willed because of the art, too. Mm-hmm. And for Don Henley to actually say yes to the interview was huge. I flew to Dallas and didn't know what to expect, and he was great. thing was, you know, they give you a bunch of, you cannot ask about the Egos. You can't ask, yeah. ask it wasn't on my plan, but thank you. Yeah. Um, right. I mean, yeah. that, that last line that he says is just the camera's about to turn off. And he pauses, he goes, I just have to say, I wouldn't have had a solo career if it wasn't for Danny. He was the one that encouraged me and pushed me into it. Yeah. What That's is, all you need. Right. Could have stopped there. Gold. Go, oh, God, yeah. did the goosebumps go on you when you just... Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. my God. What about Phil Collins? How'd you get Phil? Phil, because Leland was on the road with Phil. At the time. Oh, okay. And so that was the second... Thank God. 
That was the <laughs> second to the last show he was ever going to do. Mm. And I just cut an outtake the other night. And it's like, so sweet. This poor man was in such pain. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a back operation that went bad. And, you know, so it's kind of bittersweet. You know, and Leland was there in the room and then got involved a little. But it was sweet. Phil Collins, when he was quite, when he got choked up. Yeah. I get choked up. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I get choked up. And we pause there on the cut and you just see him in his eyes. Yeah. And it's funny because one of the, you know, I'm talking to him about family. You know, the idea that you're in bands. He goes, he goes through the whole band. He goes, I've known this guy for 50 years. I've known this guy for 30 years. I've been this guy, da, da, da. And, you know, I've loved Leland for almost 40 years. And now, you know, his kid, Nick, plays drums for him. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of this weird comes back around where he actually has his family in it. It's fabulous. One of the (laughs) things that struck me, I think it was Danny with James Taylor. Yeah. And the beginning of their relationship. I mean, they were friends before they they started playing together. So they met as teenagers, probably 13 and 15 years old in the Cape. Every summer they would go there and they'd see each other. I don't think they were friends outside of that at that point, but they would see each other, they would play music, and that's how that started. And so then they get a band together in the city. And at that point, they're probably 18, 19 in that area. And Danny, they said, why don't you call it the James Taylor group? He goes, no, 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 I don't want James Taylor and the Flying Machine. Which is really interesting because you look at all of them, even at the end of the movie when they all talk about the guys themselves, talk about, we don't want to be a solo artist, we want to be part of a band. In a weird way, James was, I think, the same thing. And Carol, she didn't want to be a solo artist. She was very panicked about doing that. So in a weird way, there's that kind of person that wants to be part of something and not be the focus. You know, so it's interesting that all those guys and those two. I guess that's the difference between the Wrecking Crew and the Immediate Family. You know, with the Immediate Family, like, we're going to record this, then we're going to go out on the road and we're going to play. I think timing is everything. Here's the thing. With the Wrecking Crew... For those who don't really know the backstory, they were used because their labels were knocking out music very quickly. Rock and roll in 1961, 62, it's at its really at its infancy. You know, you're talking about what, five, six years, right, what we're yeah. calling this even rock and roll probably. So LA's got this thing going. They got the Beach Boys, they got the surf sound, they got some of the pop music, but then Spectre comes in. LA starts getting traction. And because they have an infrastructure going on, they had the studios, they had all that there in the artists and the musicians, they could find people to play this rock and roll stuff. Radio starts playing top 40. They can sell singles because the radio's pushing it. Mm-hmm. you know. And obviously now it's back and forth, they're feeding off each other. But hey, if we're gonna make money on this, we can't be spending a lot of money in the studio with these groups. You know, They're not that good. Recording bands, you know, they were just the, the guys, the bands that were on the road with these people a lot of times. And sometimes they were good, but the producers didn't trust them. So they would basically hire the studio players like my father and Hal Blaine and Carol Kay and Glenn Campbell, Don Randy and, and Leon Russell, th- those guys. They're in the studio knocking out three-hour session, three-hour session, three-hour session. And what you could do legally, meaning union-wise, they said you can only do three or four songs in three hours. What they didn't want you to do is knock out an album in three hours because it was just like a car. You know, yeah. we're going to slow it down, <laughs> which is amazing because, yeah, they did knock out three songs in three hours. And those would go on the album and that was it. So a single would become, let's say a single becomes a hit. Another one, they decide, OK, let's put an album together. Now we have 
you know, working up our way on the charts. So they figured that out. But no one went on the road. At this point, my father's working three or four dates a day in 1967. If you look at his tax returns, which I did, it was like, holy God. <laughs> I didn't realize, you know, I put it in today's terms, it's like, holy shit, that was crazy. But they were so in demand at this point. You didn't go on the road. A, it didn't pay well. If you go, Glenn went on the road. Why did Glenn go on the road? They paid him yeah. to take over Brian Wilson's part. You know, that's different. Don Randy and, and Hal sometimes would go on the road with Nancy Sinatra. They didn't go on the road for long periods of time because you don't, because you don't want to lose your chair. Yeah. And that was the mindset. There's eight other guitar players that's going to play the same like my father. A Telecaster's a Telecaster. You know, most of those guys, you know, can play the same riff, whatever. Where he was safe was his acoustic playing and his reading ability. They're booking him way in advance for that. He could read upside down, I hear. Exactly. <laughs> but, so those guys basically didn't ever leave town. We just didn't do it. So now the late 60s come in, the bands are better. Now, what's interesting is when you see Leland, Russ, Danny, not Waddy yet, in the like in 71, when they're doing those albums, Sweet Baby James and Tapestry and all that stuff, and this is where the light bulb went off when I was interviewing Peter Asher. Peter said, I said something about legends. Blah, blah, blah. And Peter goes, they weren't legends. They were just our friends. And I realized, oh, you're right. These are the first albums that they're doing in 72, right? So I'm thinking 71, 72, they're kind of like starting off. In 67, in the heyday of my father, he's already been doing it for 10 years. These guys are starting off right off at the top in a weird way. Russ Kunkel's first three albums, what, what was it, 71? Joni Mitchell's Blue, Sweet Baby James, and Tapestry. Yeah. Quit. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. Right. You're done. You're done. That's well, it. Let's You've go. already reached oh, your yeah. pinnacle. <laughs> you know, go home. So these, but they're not busy in the studios yet. So that's what I'm trying to say is they're doing it, but they're not. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? They could stay. And now their opportunity to go record or record and then take it on the road was a whole different animal. And they started doing it because they could. And they start getting busy. Now they're just getting paid for it to go on the road. And Jackson said, I had to pay those guys. Yeah. <laughs> Jackson, he was talking about it. And same with David Crosby. Those guys, they, if you wanted them, you had to pay for them to go on the road, which was right. And that changed the business. The other thing that changed the business were the tracks. Glenn Campbell said everybody in the room was a Michael Jordan. <laughs> you know, no mistakes. Because you got 10, 15 people on the Spectre date. If you make a mistake, you got to start all over. No one's popping in with right. computers or cutting tape. So you didn't mess up. And then in the late 60s, you got a few tracks. You could lay down that solo as many times as you want because you got an open trap. Yeah. So it changed. And FM, that's the other big thing. <laughs> FM changes. LPs come out now. Yeah. Long play, you know, you're listening, you're looking at those credits. You're seeing these weird names. Waddy, Wattel, <laughs> Cooch. Leland, Sklar, you know, Russ Kunkel, didn't sound real. When we were doing the podcast, Leland was the one who's the glue, who's like holding it well, all together with this interview. And, well, and like also Leland's the only one probably remembers. Yeah. Because oh, Leland give, didn't do a drug in his life. Yeah. That's the other interesting thing about it. And they all talk about it. It's like Lee never touched, doesn't touch alcohol. And not because he's holy. It's not his thing. My father was the same way. They're OCD in a weird way that, they don't like being out of control. Yeah. My dad was like yeah. that. He didn't like the feeling of, no, nah, I don't like that. I don't like being out. He didn't take Novocaine. 
You know, he didn't want to even have Novocaine pulling the teeth out. Ah. Uh, <laughs> so Leland's the same way in a sense that he never touched anything. So his memory is killer, as Russ says in the movie. He goes, there's a lot of fogginess. I blame Waddy for that. <laughs> well, it seems like you got everyone. Was, who's um, the one who got away, maybe? Over I, there? I, I'm blown away the people we got. And it's not be listen. The only reason we got all those people is the love they have for these players. Yeah. I mean, come on. Carol King says yes in three weeks. I'm <laughs> in town. We'll do it then. And Linda Ronstead and James and Jackson. So we show it to the guys, you know, and that's the most nerve wracking thing. Yeah. So Jackson was with them at the end and I could see Waddy was tearing up. And, and Lee said it. He goes, we've had hundreds of documentaries we've been part of. No one's ever talked about us. Mm-hmm. They're always talking about someone else. So to hear people talking about them from different points, each other. And Jackson said, he goes, wow, I've known these guys for over 50 years and there's stuff I didn't know about them. So in a weird way, it's such a sweet moment watching these guys enjoy it. I'm glad. That was the hardest thing for me. Again, with the Wrecking Crew, same thing. When I saw Hal Blaine cry the first time he saw some footage. And, he, and I thought he was joking, but he wasn't. He, it, it's very emotional to see your career go Mm. by you and friends you haven't seen or their past the great thing is now the guys are seeing it i took russ and leland on the road with me and then russ saw it with 880 people sold out wow. standing ovation they compare it to you know like russ said to wadi in a text he goes it was like that concert da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah i don't know what he's talking about but it was something that goes yeah. back 30 years you know the feeling of that love they have towards these players and so it's exciting Sure. That's so. what struck me. Every artist that you spoke to was so genuine. And oh my God. It just felt so honest. Everything they were saying about these guys, and you could feel the love. Well, it's interesting, you know, to compare the two eras of Wrecking Crew and this. My father never went home with Brian Wilson or Sinatra or any of that. He was not on the road to bond with anybody. Yeah. They went in, they went out, they went in, they went out, they did their job. Now they might see each other a couple times a week. The difference is these guys are on the road for months at a time, 11 months sometimes, and you're in the buses together. So they're bonding with Carol and Linda and James and Jackson. They're friends. They are real friends. Not like, you know, hey, my father was friends with, you know, whatever, uh, you know. Yeah. But not really. Right, acquaintances, right. work acquaintances with some of the artists. You know, and that's the difference is these are real friends to them because they all grew up together. Especially when, when the Wrecking Crew, I said, were you guys ever intimidated by the artist? You know, again, no, because everybody other than Sinatra, <laughs> don't forget these players, Hal and Dad and Don and Glenn and whatever, they're monsters. The people that they're playing for right. can't really play their instruments. So they're looking up to these guys to do a great album for them. And the same as this group, they only look up to them, you know, Oh my God, thank you for doing that. Lick, it wasn't about ego. What's going to work for the song? And they'll fight for that. You know, it might not be a solo. Don't do a solo here. You know, let it lay out. So you have this movie. <laughs> what do you what do, do with do? it now? People, you know, need to tell people. You know, there's some great films out there that never get seen. Yeah. We're not going to be that. I will keep going and knocking <laughs> down doors. I won't stop showing it. Oh, first of all, plug. So that's when you plug your uh, your it, web. You have a website or oh, what? Website. What, is, what? What do you yeah. have? This thing, the, the social w- media. W- w- it's uh, immediatefamilyfilm.com. 
And I say, if you go to mediatefamily.com, you'll get a family therapist. <laughs> and that's true. But if you go to mediafamilyfilm.com, you'll see the outtakes. So that's been good. It's, that's my thing is I love outtakes. Yeah. All the things I couldn't put in. Have you cleared all the music? Yeah. I mean, it's all cleared, paid. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't want music for free, by the way. Yeah. My father put me through school. None of the music should be free. As far as if you want to give it up to, for free, that's great. But people should be paid for it. You know, that's how we keep going. And, you know, when I had to pay the union, I paid them 200000 the last film. You know, I was pleasure to give money into the musician's fund. That's how it should be. People should be paid for what they do. The same thing with this movie as the other one in Wrecking Crew. Any song or music cue in the movie has one of these guys on it. So like when the Wrecking Crew, when there's like uh, uh, stripper big band music or whatever I was doing, I used Frank Capp's big band, you Mm -hmm. know, with somebody that was tied to this film. Same thing with here. It's, you know, you just pick the songs that they're part of, you know. You have to reach too far. (laughs) No, no. You know, it's funny because with Wrecking Crew, I wanted quantity, not always quality. (laughs) So when you're doing like someone like uh, the Chipmunks, you know, you're throwing in, you know, (laughs) quantity. Here, they didn't do too much of that stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm sure there's songs on there that y'all, I don't like that one. (laughs) But, you know, for us, it's they're all good songs. You know, um, yes, they are. Yeah. So, what I learned is that we have a nicer garage than Mark Marin. How awesome is that? Well, uh, we should say that it's a verified nicer garage than Mark Marin, except that Obama himself has sat in Mark Marin's garage up to this point. Right, up until that point, I should, we should say. Yeah. Okay. We can. Then it just became nicer, as everything does with Obama. Okay. Well, we'll see. There's still time, right? <laughs> I think this is the best garage. Yeah. Well. Anyway, that's Denny left and told us that our our garage is nicer than Mark Marin. So take that, Mark. <laughs> WTF? Huh? Right. We're gonna hashtag him. That's right. We should. <laughs> yeah. No, that was fun. We. Loved hearing about his family, his family relations with all the old session musicians, but also we have a special place in our hearts for the immediate family. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, look back in 2020. One of our first Zoom interviews was with the guys in the band. So I uh, looked that up. What else could they look up? How else could they find What Difference Does It Make? You can find us on social media at WDDIM Podcast and our YouTube channel at What Difference Does It Make Podcast. You can see the clips from our podcast with the immediate family back in 2020 and also outtakes and great stories from Denny Tedesco. You can go on our website, WDDIMpodcast.com and subscribe to our newsletter. We also have all our old podcasts on there. So, you know, you can find us there whatever on your favorite podcast platform we have new episodes every friday so subscribe and like and give us a lovely review if you so desire and you can search by topic i've used that before on our website i just use our little search engine and i find the podcast yeah because we've been doing this for five years now so there's a lot to remember and that's just a great assist yeah i can't remember anything i have no idea who's coming up next week so Always subscribe so you can find out who that artist or person or mystery guest might be. (laughs) Yes. Or just follow us on social media. We'll tell you everything you need to know about the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Well, that sounds lovely. All right. Well, then, until next time, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 